0: decolonizing our minds. Indigenous people speak out from Palestine to the U.S. Why the same struggle, the same fight? Palestinians and Native Americans. The inherent struggle for freedom and justice.
1: The statistics of unyielding poverty and high unemployment in Native communities were staggering. By 1970, 40% of the Native population lived in poverty. The unemployment rate was 10 times the national average. Life expectancy was only 44 years old.
2: I worked at a junkyard getting out of high school, so I was friends with the owners, Abel, Abel Otto, right here on the resume. The issue of
3: murdered and missing indigenous women uh, seems to slip from the
4: newspapers and the television talking heads. You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast, weekly produced by the Labor Radio Podcast Network, laborradionetwork.org. I'm Chris Garlock. Our shows today are themed around the holiday the nation just celebrated yesterday, But Thanksgiving looks different depending on where you stand. So, from Equal Rights and Justice, Building Bridges host Mimi Rosenberg connects the struggles of Native peoples both here in the U.S. and in Palestine. And, from America Works, an interview with Mike Williams, a dirt track auto racer from the famed Ransomville Speedway in western New York, interviewed at his home, in the Tuscarora Nation Reservation. Today's labor history in two is actually from July 11, 1968, the day that the American Indian Movement began at a meeting in Minneapolis, Minnesota, when a group of 200 Native Americans gathered together to discuss a response to the US government's history of broken treaties and the devastating consequences on Native peoples. We wrap up with my own Labor Heritage Power Hour where we talked with Kevin Cummings, a member of the Machinist Union for 35 years. Kevin's also a Native American who traces his lineage to both the Lumbee and Cherokee peoples, which means he spent his life fighting for rights, whether it was his fellow workers or his Native brothers and sisters. We end the show with Kevin's powerful song, Stolen Angels about the many indigenous women who are still missing here's the show
0: You're listening to Grateful for the Resistance, WPFW's annual Indigenous Day of Mourning commemoration on WPFW, Washington. Gotta get it, as Peter Tosh says, equal rights and justice. I'm Mimi Rosenberg. Greetings, greetings to WPFW listeners, 89.3 FM in D.C. and our WBAI hometown, 99.5 listeners, New York metro area and... Well, we bleed into Connecticut and Pennsylvania and New Jersey. Welcome to all. This is Equal Rights and Justice with a special till noon when we'll head to Coles Hill, Plymouth, Massachusetts, where indigenous people and their allies will gather to commemorate a national day of mourning on the U.S., thanksgiving holiday as they have since 1970 but now equal rights and justice where we educate agitate and we organize for for another world is possible and we are the ones to make it so that's why we seek to empower you the people We're decolonizing our minds. Indigenous peoples speak out from Palestine to the U.S. Why? The same struggle, the same fight. Palestinians and Native Americans, the inherent struggle for freedom and justice. We're focusing on settler colonialism. I'm reminded of two Native peoples, two oppressive powers, American Indians and Palestinians. The Palestinians in Gaza are the American Indians of the Middle East. This was the opinion of the late American Indian civil rights leader, Russell Means. In reviewing the history of the two people, it is clear that both Palestinians and American Indians share similar hardships. There is the common usurpation of land, of loss of self-determination, and the destruction of families that plague both peoples. There's also the issue that if the transgressions of settler colonialism and the genocide against the American Indians and the genocide unfolding in real time now against the Palestinians are not addressed at their root, There may be no solution to ending what has been a fluid and continuing holocaust of these two peoples. In the U.S., Columbus has been celebrated. In the United States of America for many, many years, for more and more people, though, are coming to understand that he initiated the American Indians suffering. American Indian women were used as sex slaves. And the enslavement of the native population for the purposes of gold mining occurred under Columbus's supervision. There were American Indians who resisted the mandate of collecting gold for the Spanish. And for their resistance, their hands could be hacked off or they would be Beheaded. Unfortunately, unfortunately for the American Indians, the torture didn't end with Columbus. With the advent of the United States of America came many more atrocities and tales of oppression for the native people, such atrocities as the Trail of Tears that was created by the forced relocation of native tribes from the East to the Midwest, which would become a Precedent for breaking future treaties and sending American Indians to reservations such as Pine Ridge in South Dakota. Ah, Wounded Knee. Wounded Knee is a name that has been burned into the collective American Indian memory for the atrocity that had occurred there on the Pine Ridge Reservation in 1890. Conservative estimates say that 150 American Indian. Men, women, and children were shot dead while other estimates said that there were nearly 300 murders. But whichever estimates one concurs with, it is clear that the massacre at Wounded Knee was perhaps the worst shooting in United States history. The 7th U.S. Cavalry was attempting to disarm a native band of their weapons at Wounded Knee. This, this was the justification the United States government gave for the murders. Well, if you, like me, are from a Jewish immigrant family that was fleeing the Holocaust, you may have been inculturated with the Zionist propaganda that Palestine, Palestine was a land without a people for a people without a land. A Jewish homeland for the survivors of the Holocaust I never paid much attention to the news while growing up. You may not know much about the Palestinians as a result, but later on I would learn from Palestinians in exile of the process used by Zionist extremists who intended to dehumanize and make the world forget the Palestinians. And now oftentimes in college and the like, those who dared discuss the issues, well, they had their classes canceled as presenting an unbalanced, unbalanced approach to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. How many even were acquainted with the summer of 2014 with the onset of shelling of the Islamic University of Gaza? much less the 75 years of catastrophe where Zionists would massacre Palestinians. They were unable to conveniently rout from their lands. The first Nakba catastrophe of 1948, the Palestinian version of the American Indian Trail of Tears. I learned of one of the first offenses against the Palestinians. The massacre of Lydda in 1948, that massacre in 1948 was where the newly declared State of Israel attacked one of the Palestinian towns outside their zone of control. When some Palestinians fought back against the Israeli invaders, the citizens in the town were rounded up in their houses and the local mosque and murdered with grenades and anti-tank shells. The tragedy at Lidah and other similar events began at the Nakba. This is the Palestinian tragedy that caused many Palestinians to be ejected from their homes. The Nakba continues in the form of forcing Palestinians from their lands and homes to this day.
1: I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. This day in labor history, the year was 1968. That was the day that the American Indian Movement began at a meeting in Minneapolis, Minnesota. A group of 200 Native Americans gathered together to discuss a response to the U.S. government's history of broken treaties and the devastating consequences on Native peoples. The statistics of unyielding poverty and high unemployment in Native communities were staggering. By 1970, 40% of the Native Native population lived in poverty. The unemployment rate was 10 times the national average. Life expectancy was only 44 years old. In the early 1970s, activists staged a series of occupations at Alcatraz, Wounded Knee, and at Mount Rushmore. Mount Rushmore is built on a site in the Black Hills that is sacred to the Ocheti Sakawan, or the Great Sioux Nation. The United States government promised native rights to the land in a treaty that was broken when gold was discovered. In 1972, activists staged a Trail of Broken Treaties caravan, which ended in a six-day occupation of the Bureau of Indian Affairs offices in Washington, D.C. They issued a statement that read, quote, We seek a new American majority, a majority that is not content merely to confirm itself by superiority of numbers, but which conscience is committed toward prevailing upon the public will, in ceasing wrongs and doing right. Beginning in the 1970s, the United States government began to respond to Native people's demands. A series of federal acts gave Native communities more control over their education and improving their health care. Lawsuits brought by tribes resulted in further economic autonomy. Yet by 2014, one in four Native people still lived in poverty. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. From the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C.
5: Welcome to America Works, interviews with contemporary workers throughout the United States, collected by the library's American Folklife Center as part of its occupational folklife project. This is AFC staff folklorist Nancy Gross, and this America Works episode features excerpts from a longer interview with Mike Williams, a dirt track auto racer at the famed Ransomville Speedway in western New York. He was interviewed at his home on the Tuscarora Nation by folklorist Edward Millar from the Castellani Art Museum at Niagara University. The interview is part of Millar's larger project documenting the culture and folklore of track workers at Ransomville, a family-run racetrack that is a regional source of pride and local identity in Niagara County and the wider Buffalo-Niagara region.
2: When I first started racing, 85 was the first year that I started. And um, it was an enduro car, it's basically a street car, almost like a demo car. You take all the glass out, chain the doors shut, weld them shut, and it's usually 100 laps. And there's no cautions. All, everything you had was pretty much you could get out of a junkyard. Mm-hmm. And, you, and I worked at a junkyard, getting out of high school. And so I was friends with the owners, Able Abel Auto, right here on the reservation. And you really had to think, you had to be part engineer, you had to be part mechanic. Um, The ones that are really successful are the guys that know the car and are able to uh, put it in their own garage and work on it day in and day out. Know every part, every piece, every bolt, it's well maintained Um, and it becomes a second job but it's got to be a labor of love. Well, the first thing I, I guess that I would impress on people is everybody wants to go on Friday night, man. They're ready to go racing. Mm-hmm. But the races aren't won on Friday night, believe it or not. That's race night. The races are actually won on Saturday morning, and Monday night, and Tuesday night at midnight. It's when you're in the garage, and or in the shop, in your race shop, or wherever you're working on the car. Pull into the, into the track. You go to the pit shack, you sign in. Uh, typically, if that's your home track, you've got a membership. So you you go in, and you just sign in, you show them your membership card, you sign in. Go into your designated pit spot. And, uh, pit spots have become kind of a big thing. The whole thing is a momentum. It's a momentum thing. And Everybody thinks it's all horsepower and just mashing your foot to the floor. You mash your foot to the floor, you're done. I know, I, I, I made a mistake a few years back, and it's a friend of mine that I raced with, and his kid raced, and uh, his kid got in, into a sportsman, and he moved up, <clears throat> and, and I was in a heat, and he was slower than me, and I knew he was, and the track wasn't real wide, and I tried to go around him, and, and something happened, he lifted, and when you lift in, in a modified or a, a, a sportsman car, the front end washes out, the car wants to go straight, mm-hmm. and he lifted halfway through the corner, mm-hmm. and I ran over his, his front wheel, and I you know, I didn't really wreck, wreck but it could have been bad. Mm-hmm. And when I pulled back in, his dad came over to me, and he said, you know better than to pass a rookie on the outside. I think some of the wrecks that, that you do get into, some of the ones that don't look bad are the ones that really hurt. Everybody says, oh, you rolled over, you rolled over. Well, sometimes rolling over isn't that bad. Um, I've done that like I said two or three times, but I've hit walls walls don't move You know once you start racing you realize most of these guys are friends, you know (laughs) (laughs) It's not really as big a rivalry as the fans make it out to be sometimes, but it's more of a camaraderie I think with a lot of a lot of people and a lot of friends Mm -hmm. Uh, and probably that's um, that's probably the best thing about racing, I think, is the people and the friends that you make. I would say <clears throat> don't take it too serious. And, and that's that's a hard thing. Seeing guys get divorced over racing. I've seen guys lose friendships. I've seen them go on a debt. Keep things in perspective. Enjoy it.
5: You have been listening to Mike Williams, a dirt track auto racer at the legendary Ransomville Speedway. To hear the complete interview with Mr. Williams and interviews with more auto track workers, as well as hundreds of other contemporary American workers, please visit the library's Occupational Folklife Project at www.loc.gov forward slash folklife, or just search online for the Occupational Folklife Project. This is staff folklorist Nancy Gross. On behalf of the American Folklife Center, and with a special thanks to AFC intern Brian Jenkins for his help with this episode, thank you for listening to America Works. This has been a presentation of the Library of Congress. Visit us at loc.gov.
6: credit day uh.
3: I'll preface all of this with the, with saying that there is no hierarchy of oppression. If it exists, it's wrong. And I don't care who it's against. But there was no voice for Natives and uh, that hurt. We can do better, we can do better.
4: Kevin Cummings has been a member of the Machinist Union for 35 years. He's also a Native American who traces his lineage to both the Lumbee and Cherokee peoples, which means that Kevin Cummings has spent his life fighting for rights, whether it was his fellow workers or his native brothers and sisters. Hmm, A really good job of, of bringing issues that Um, most people just don't even know about, haven't heard about uh, fallen off the radar. And um, your song, Stolen Angels, is just very powerful in bringing that story and that tragedy uh, back to the forefront. So talk a little bit about Stolen Angels, if you would, please.
3: Uh, Yeah, the the issue of murdered and missing indigenous women uh seems to slip from the newspapers and the uh uh and and the television talking heads uh if they're and i don't want to be crass but if it was uh tens of thousands of young women uh, of just about any other type there would be telethons and marches in the streets and demands for politicians but the reservations are uh, just today's internment camps um the education water electricity the generational trauma um it's hidden behind the the fences and we've got problems with uh tribal police aren't allowed to go outside and chase somebody who's committed a crime and people outside uh don't go on res chasing people that have committed crimes so there's a breakdown if somebody rapes a girl and hits the fence they're good to go. Uh and that's just uh it's wrong. I mean uh, this is 2023. Uh you would know, think it was 1875 sometimes. Uh right. but it's uh there there's a couple of commonalities uh with uh, some of the large projects uh like pipelines and things like that. There are moving cities that are going through Indian land and uh, uh I'll share in a minute uh, the international trade treaties that uh, tr- international trade agreements that violate the treaties uh, with the tribes. But these moving cities go along through the tribes and there's hundreds and hundreds of people in, in uh, travel trailers. And uh, as they're building the pipeline, they move through areas and there's a lot of women go missing along those um It happens in other places too, but that's a a cluster that uh, needs to be monitored a little more closely. And as uh, the contracts are let out, we'd like to see a little more security built into those contracts that there's uh, to protect the people working and to protect the people that are near where they're working. Mm -hmm. Uh, The uh, uh, MMI Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women, uh, Washington has where I live has more of those than any other state in the union, uh, and the number one place is the Yakima Nation out in the center of uh, the state along the Columbia River, and it's uh, it's just a high visibility thing among the Indian country out here, uh, and I've no- I know some of the families where the daughters have gone missing, and I have a bandana. Uh, with the mmiw printed across the front of it and when i play at festivals uh, and i sing that song uh, people will come up and they'll sign the name of the girl that went missing on the bandana so i've got a few signatures it's uh it's just heartbreaking Is the uh we're not supposed to lose our daughters uh not like that
6: Another native girl is missing, another empty chair at home, gotta do more than listen as another family mourns, lift up the We gotta let people know, we won't let them ignore, till there's no stolen angels anymore. They're the future of our people, the Creator's grand design. Daughters should become mothers and create life. Lift up. Gotta let people know
4: That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Just a tiny sample of the amazing programs aired over the last week on more than 200 labor radio and podcast shows. They're all part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, shows that focus on working people's issues and concerns. We've got links to all the network shows, laborradionetwork.org. You can also find them use the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited and produced by me this week and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. For the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this has been Chris Garlock, urging you to Stay active and, of course, stay tuned to your local labor radio podcast show.